Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 4. James begins with another question. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns or cries jealously? But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, these are familiar verses, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Picture James pounding on the pulpit here. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. and Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Uh, I told you last week, James has a burr in his saddle, right? It sounds like a guy who got up on the wrong side of the bed and then wrote this letter, right? There's something grating on him. Uh, he sounds more like an Old Testament prophet than a minister of grace in the New Testament. You think, where is he going with this? When we get to chapter 5, it's going to get worse. He's going to tell the rich to weep and mourn about your riches. And yet I think most of you know who have been here in our studies in James, James is writing to us about real and genuine faith. And he's writing to, and you have to get familiar with this term, a mixed multitude. You might say, Pastor Bob, what's a mixed multitude? A mixed multitude is gathered here this morning and probably in every gathering around the world. We don't know who's here, but we can assume there's people all across a continuum, right? There are people that are genuinely born again who have come to a relationship with Christ. They have the fruit of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence. Other people are exploring Christianity, and that's wonderful. We're glad you're here. I know folks who sat in this church for a year until they crossed the line of faith and understood what grace was. So we understand many people are in process. Many people are along the continuum of the parable Jesus told where there's hard soil and rocky soil and soil with thorns. So in any gathering, there's a mixed multitude, and James is coming along saying, look, the proof's in the pudding. Here's what real and genuine faith looks like. There's a transformation of spirit and soul, and we become people that are brand new, people that hunger and thirst after righteousness, born of God's spirit. In chapter 1, he said, pure and undefiled religion is this, that we, widow, we visit widows and orphans in their distress. That's not how we earn God's favor. That's because we understand who God is. People matter to God. They should matter to us. And then the second thing James says is we should stay unspotted from the world. Now he takes another step here in verse 4 of chapter 4 when he says friendship with the world, the world that we're to be unspotted from, is to become an enemy of God. And he asks it in a question, do you not know? Which means a lot of people don't know. That if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. That means we have to discuss what is the world. Now there's all kind of theories out there and you've probably heard all kinds of teachings. First of all, the world is not people. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. God loved mankind so much, he became one of them. That's the message of Christmas. 
And not only became a man, but was born in the poverty. It's just the most amazing story the world's ever heard. And died a criminal's death, that he would be the Lamb of God and die for the sins of the world. God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's good news, right? That's the cheering we saw in the video. So it's not the world, it's not the earth, right? I'm excited about the new heavens and the new earth, but I kind of like it here, right? Don't you? I like earth. It's kind of cool. Psalm 100 talks about the beauty of the earth, Table Mountain in Australia, and uh, some of the great wonders that we've seen around the world. I mean, earth is cool. When the Bible talks about the world, it's talking about the godless system structures and streams of thought aligned against God and his Christ. Read Psalm 2 when you get a chance. The whole world is moving somewhere. You know, there's God's kingdom, and then there's the kingdom of man, right? When you're saved, you're put into the kingdom of God, and then there's the kingdom of this world. Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my soldiers would fight for it. But because it's not of this world, they don't. And so we're moving somewhere as the kingdom of God. Read the book of Revelation. God's going to shut this world down. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And God's going to reign supreme. That's where we're moving. And that's the narrow road. And then there's a wide road that everybody else is on. And on the wide road, there's a stream of thought that the world's going to get better and we're going to achieve. We're going to rebuild Babel. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And we're going to do it all sans God. And that's where the world's moving. And James says to become friends with this world is to become an enemy of God. So Christians love conspiracy, right? A lot of you talk to me and write to me, and there's a lot of conspiracies. That, you know, the Bilderberg Group runs the world, and the Club of Rome, and there's all these documentaries that are one-sided. And then a Christian book comes out and corroborates it all, and Christians get all wacko. And look, here's the bottom line. No one's that smart, okay? There's one giant conspiracy. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, principalities, powers. Again, the the kings of this world are moving somewhere. They're demonically influenced. And James says, to be friends of the world is to be an enemy of God. Let me share with you something that helped me five years into my Christian walk that I think can liberate you this morning. Ravi Zacharias taught me this. He said, as Christians, we're called to be world-affirming and world-denying at the same time. What in the world does that mean? Well, I read seven articles yesterday on Christians' involvement in Hollywood, professional sports, things like Disneyland, etc., where one side of the argument says, oh my gosh, when we give them all the money, we're fueling that ideology. And the other says, no, you know, those things are amoral. And so I think what Ravi's trying to say is, you know, if we go to an orchestra or a football game, there's the beauty of talent and God-given talent and common grace that was given to those people, and we can enjoy it. They're made in the image of God. But we should deny where it's all going. Jesus said, excuse me, we should be in the world and not of it. So here's the question. How do we stay unspotted from the world, and why do we stay unspotted from the world? Now, most of what I heard in this regard has been taught in legalism, rules, what you do and don't do. And I've said it a hundred times, I'll say it a hundred more times, legalism has failed. The only thing it's ever tried to do is to make man holy. 
But I want to give you two reasons I think come right out of James that may help you in your Christian experience. Why and how do we stay unspotted from the world? Number one, something we almost never hear about, the jealousy of God. And number two, the condition of our very souls. Let's start with the jealousy of God. If a Jewish person heard this phrase, the spirit that is in you cries jealously, and James was writing to Jews who had converted to Christianity, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. That's the down payment of your inheritance. And that is a jealous spirit. If the Jews heard the word jealousy, they would go right to the Ten Commandments. Now, you don't need to turn to Exodus chapter 20, but I want to read it for you. And I'm going to read you the first two commands that God gives at Sinai. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And that was the house of bondage. The world is always bondage. And God says in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment is you shall make for yourself no carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, these idols, or serve them. And here's the reason why. For I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, this isn't part of my message today, but just in case you've ever been taught about generational sins, I want to clear it up in 30 seconds. Ready? It's not true. Don't let anybody tell you that you're, what you're doing in life is because there's a generational curse on your family. Look, your mom and dad passed down to you what my mom and dad passed down to me, a sin nature. Adam passed it down to them, they passed it to us. And guess what? That's good enough. You've got a lot of potential to sin with a sin nature. Are there proclivities in families and cultures? Yes. Is there learned behavior? Is there modeling? Yes. But there is no generational curse on you. It says here, God visits the iniquity. God will judge sin to the third and fourth generation. But notice the phrase, to those who hate me. I think everybody in this room loves God, which means he'll show mercy to thousands. So don't get caught up into this like i got to get cured of generational sins. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. Anyway, that's not the point of what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is, Scripture says right here, that God is a jealous God. Now that's really strange, because if we were to brainstorm the attributes of God, we would say God is love, that's right in the Bible. You know, God is wise, he's all-powerful, he's omnipotent, he's holy, you know, he doesn't lie. There's so many wonderful attributes of God. I don't think there's a person in this room, before you came in here, would have said, you know what, God's jealous, right? Because most jealous people are not to be desired, right? They're like fanatically jealous, and that's like almost a vice, not a virtue. But I think we understand that anger, there's a holy anger, right? Lust is desire. It's not only a, always a sexual desire. So I think we all understand that a godly jealousy means God is jealous for us. Wow, that changes the equation. He's jealous for us. Why would God be jealous for us? Because we were in the house of bondage, left to ourselves and left to this world, we we're in the house of bondage. We had the wrong master. How do I know? Because he brought him out of Egypt, that's a type of the world. In Egypt, they worshiped other gods. They were polytheistic and pantheistic. And by the way, the world still is today. You know, most people believe all roads lead to God. 
And so he brought them out of the land of idols. And how did he bring them out? With a mighty hand. In Egypt, they believed that frogs and cattle were gods. Lice were, were gods. The Nile was a god. Ra was the sun god. Now, I've said this before, and because it's fresh this week, I'll say it again, because we had a whole bunch of staff with a stomach flu, including me this week, or last week. And I've said it before, God didn't need 10 plagues to bring Israel out of Egypt. All he had to do was give the Egyptians a stomach flu, and they would have gone right out. I mean, I'm laying in my bed, and I didn't care if the roof collapsed. That's how bad I felt. So why did God bring them out with 10 plagues? Systematically judging the gods of Egypt. Ra's the sun god? All right, let's put darkness over the earth. And let's let the Nile turn to blood. Systematically, one by one, God's saying, these gods are phony. They're, they're counterfeit. And he brings Israel out by a mighty hand, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. And the reason God's jealous for them is that he gives them his law. And the law was a beautiful thing. The law was to connect them to God. Yes, they would be a civil entity, and it was how to get along with one another. But the whole purpose of the law, listen, you'll see this phrase repeated over and over again. God said that you might be my people and I might be your God. God's always been relational since the garden. He walked with Adam. He was the friend of Abraham. He walked with Enoch. And he told Moses, I want you to build this tabernacle, make it portable, put it right in the center of my people. And every time they move, I'm moving with them. And then we get to John where we see the word was made flesh and he tabernacled among us, Jesus, right in the midst of his people. And God is jealous for us for this reason and this reason only. Psalm 115, the psalmist says it, our God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. The idols of men, silver and gold, the work of their hands. Listen to this. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, they do not see. They have ears, and they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they cannot handle. Feet, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. And those who make them are like them. Nearness is likeness, Tozer said. And so is everyone who trusts in them. See, God's heart breaks over idolatry. And when we talk about idolatry, please don't misunderstand. We have a tendency to think that ancient people were stupid people. Guys, they built the pyramids. They built the Parthenon, the, the library at Alexandria. These were brilliant people. And don't think they were sitting around looking at carved images thinking they were gods. Uh, they were looking past the image to what it represented. Be similar to you looking at a Mercedes emblem or any of a thousand icons we have today and it, it meaning something to you. I had a friend who said every time he looked at that Mercedes symbol, he felt like a man who had succeeded in life. So if this civilization is ever gone and they dig us up and they find all these emblems, they'll think the same thing of us, I think. The problem, it'll never fill your soul. And if it would, we wouldn't read what we read in the papers about all these celebrities and rock stars and regular people. Can never fill an empty soul. The soul has an infinite desire because God is so big we were designed that way. And it'll never give man meaning and purpose. Like we saw in the video, we were designed for something more. We were designed to walk with God. We were designed to walk something out. Paul picks up on this idea in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 11 when he says, uh, for I am jealous for you, 
listen, with a godly jealousy, speaking to his congregation, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul had led these people to Christ. He was pastoring this church. He said, he said I, I, I have delivered you to Christ, and I am jealous for you. And Paul was jealous in this regard. They were leaving the simplicity of Christ and going on to the philosophies of this world. And it was a mixture, right? That's what false doctrine is. It's always a mixture of Christianity and philosophy. And Paul said, look, God is jealous for you, and I am jealous for you. Why? Because God is the only one that can ever satisfy. When Paul dips into his metaphor bag, and he looks at the relationship between God and man, he said there's only one metaphor, and it's marriage. Only one. There's no other one that suffices. And why is it marriage? You know, think about this. Why, when you open a Bible, do you not see a system of worship on the first page or, or, or human government or God's laws? Why does it take all the way to Exodus to get to laws? Why? Because God sets up a relational system. One man for one woman. Genesis 2.18, Therefore a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, they shall become one flesh. That wasn't just for society. Paul uses it four times in the New Testament to talk about man's relationship to God and our relationship as the church to Christ. Why does the metaphor work? Think about this. Permanence. When you get married, you will say something like, till death do us part. Romans 8 says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is nothing. We are inseparably linked to the God who saved us. Do I believe in once saved, always saved? Yes, if you ever got really saved. I believe in it. I believe it's all in God's end. I really do. Uh, when you get married, you say something like, for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health, right? Good times, bad times. Romans 8 says, what can separate us? Can famine? No. Can pestilence? No. Can so No, nothing can separate us. Marriage is relational. There's intimacy between a man and a woman. We have intimacy with God through prayer and spiritual disciplines. There's forgiveness in a marriage. Your marriage won't make it a year if you don't forgive one another. That's why we have confession and so forth and so on. Listen, nearness is likeness. Nearness is likeness. The closer two people are together, the more they'll be like each other, the more communion they'll be. So Monica's jealous for me, and I'm jealous for her. Why? Because I have the best in mind for her, and I believe I'm the best for her, and she believes I'm the best. She believes I'm the best for her. Uh, I see her jealousy every so often on a Sunday morning. She's like the wind. I never know where she is on Sunday morning. She's on all three levels. But if the same woman comes up to talk to me a couple weeks in a row, boom, she's there. She appears. She's jealous for me. She gets it. She knows no one will ever care for me the way that she does. Now, God is saying, this is the way it is with me. This is the way it is with me. I become your master. I become part of a relationship with you. So when we go out into the world, when we align with the spirit of this age, which, by the way, put Christ on a cross. Remember the crowd? Do you want Barabbas or Jesus? The crowd said Jesus. The world said Jesus. The world put him on a cross. When we align with the spirit of the age, it breaks God's heart. It's like adultery. 
In Jeremiah, God said to Israel, you want to you want, you want go your own way? You want to be with the world? I'll give you a bill of divorcement. God didn't say he would divorce them. He said, if you go that way, I'll give you a bill of divorcement. He told Hosea, go marry a prostitute. You want to know what it's like on my end? Go marry a prostitute and have children of harlotry. See, we rarely look at what it does to God. It breaks his heart. Breaks his heart that we would ever bow down to idols, that we would ever align with a system that's aligned against Christ. Then here's the million dollar question why do we do it? I'll tell you why we do it. The world is made up of three things the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Eve looked at that fruit and she had everything, but there was something desirable. It looked good. It would make one wise, right? The same, we fall for the same thing over and over again. And I believe, this isn't theology, it's just Bob Gaglione. I believe we're privy, each of us, to one of them. Some of us, lust of the eyes. Some of us, lust of the flesh. Some of us, the pride of life. I'm not telling you mine. You don't have to tell me yours. But that's the draw. And the world's enticing, and sin's pleasurable for a season. But the Bible says that all that's in the world is passing away. And it's all demonically inspired. You can break it down to three things, prosperity, pleasure, and power. Now, keeping up with the news, it's so amazing how the Bible just rings out, right? But keeping up with the news... It's very interesting, and by the way, I am so sick and tired of hearing that Christians are hypocrites. And you're telling me there's no hypocrites at the movies or ball games or restaurants? Like, come on, right? They're only in here? Uh, how about this with the world, right? The world's all about pleasure, all about prosperity, all about power. So now what do we have? Ready? Times persons of the year. All the women who came forward and said those men sexually abused them, right? You all been following that? In the same magazine rack is a tribute to Hugh Hefner as an American icon. American icon who espoused all this, and now we're kicking all these guys out. Reminded me of uh, about 15 years ago, the ACLU had two cases, one on a Tuesday, one on a Thursday in different states. They argued on a Tuesday that a minor could have an abortion because they were old enough and they could reason that they didn't want the child. And then on Thursday they argued that a kid under 18 could not be tried as a criminal in a murder case. See? See when there's no standards? See the hypocrisy of it? And th this is the world, right? I think what James is saying is it's impossible to achieve the world's idea of success while simultaneously living a life of deep devotion to God. James says it just can't happen. It just doesn't work. Uh, it's like in the video, Mark was saying that Jesus was Lord at a time where you could lose your life. Jesus said very clearly, you can't serve two masters. He used the illustration of money. You can't serve God and money. Money's a wonderful servant. Tell it what to do, it's great. If it tells you what to do, it'll ruin you. What's amazing is, if you serve two masters, one emerges the victor. Over time, you can straddle the fence, but sooner or later, your ultimate allegiance will be obvious, hopefully to you and everyone around you. It'll be obvious in your checkbook, how you spend your time, all your friends will know. Now, the sad thing is, James says, some people are like looking in a mirror. They see the imperfections and they forget who they are. 
but one of them is going to emerge the victor. And, and here's why serving God in the world doesn't work. Because sooner or later, it's a collision course of values. This is why the Bible says you shouldn't be unequally yoked in marriage. When a believer marries an unbeliever, things are okay for a season, but then you have kids. How are we going to raise the kids? Where are they going to go to school? And all of a sudden, you have a collision course of values and two streams of thought. The world's always about accumulation. It's always about the flesh, uh, about more, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Where following Christ means we're content, right? Godliness with, with gain is contentment, right? You know, as long as we have a roof over our house and God's taking care of us, we're okay. Uh, the world wants us to lord it over others. Christianity says, no, we serve one another. And so you have this collision course of values where sooner or later it's not going to work. And then all in the midst of that is a God who wants the best for us. He doesn't want us double-minded. He doesn't want us with one foot in the world, one foot in, in the church. And so the jealousy of God, look at it from God's end. Number one, the second thing is you need to consider your own soul. James gives a series of action items here. We'll go through this really quick. He says here, draw near to God or submit to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your, he your hands, you sinners. And then he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. That word there is double-souled. It's a really good translation. That's the same word he used before. We're saying the double-minded man will receive nothing of the Lord. He's like a wave being tossed to and fro on an ocean. To be double-souled means, again, you've got two masters. The soul is very important. It's the real you. Don't have a lot of time to explain it, but it's probably the central thing that's keeping all of you connected and together. The will, the emotions, the mind, the soul is the one keeping all this going. Dallas Willard said the most important thing in life is not what you do, but it's who you become. That's what you will take into eternity. You are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. Who you are becoming, who you are on a soulish level is the person you will be in all of eternity. And what James is arguing for in the entire Bible is, is, that, is that we would have a wholeness of soul. That everything would be connected within us. That all our choices and our desires, remember I said the soul has infinite desire? That's because God's infinite. That's why only he can fill us. Sometimes as Christians, when we witness to people, we tell them, oh my gosh, the world is empty, right? And even while you're telling them that, you're empty? Like you're a Christian and you still feel empty? Do you know why you feel that way? The pangs of emptiness you're feeling is because you haven't been with God in a while. You may have been around godly activity. I have been in arenas with thousands of people, and all I wanted to do was go home and open my Bible and be with God. I felt so empty. And so your soul's capacity to connect with God is so important. This is why the psalmist said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. All that's within you is your soul. And James argues for humility here because it's the first step into getting right with God and experiencing his blessing. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. How do you humble yourself in sight of God? Saying, God, my plan doesn't work. 
and getting rid of self and, and figuring out what God wants to do and learning to trust him again. We sang that song today, It Is Well With My Soul. The beautiful thing about a soul is it, it, the circumstances don't matter. You know, you could be in a concentration camp or in Beverly Hills, and the condition of your soul is not dependent on either of those. Submit to God, draw near to him. Remember what Tozer said? Nearness is likeness. The closer you get to God, the more you'll be like him. The closer you, this is why as parents, we want our kids to choose good friends, right? Because they're gonna become like their friends. Nearness is likeness. And idolatry kills the human soul. All idolatry is sin. There is no sin outside of idolatry. Idolatry is the desire to prosper and to fill our emptiness outside of God. And we all do it at times, right? We're all, we're all trying to fill some kind of pangs of emptiness. And listen, this isn't legalism, right? This isn't like I'm going to a 76ers game, I wonder if that's worldly. I think if God were here, he'd go to the 76ers game with me, right? Because the people playing basketball have wonderful talents and giftings and he put it in them. And so don't think of this on a legalistic level. But think of on it on a soulish level. What my soul craves and your soul craves is to be close to God. And when we're close to God and we fellowship with others, the whole thing just seems to connect. And James here, arguing for authentic faith, says that we should humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift us up. He will fill our souls. And it's so simple, guys. I mean, the things of this world are passing away. When we get to the end of James, we're going to talk about the coming of the Lord, where he says, be patient for the Lord is coming. And every week, I mean, look at the news. Jerusalem now, the capital, has always been the eternal capital of Israel, but now we have a president saying it, right? Jeremiah said he would make Jerusalem a cup of trembling in the last days. Can you imagine 2,000 years ago anybody thinking Jerusalem be front page news? At the same time, we have wildfires burning, we have tornadoes, we have earthquakes. And, and, and you may say they all come and go, and they do. And you know why they do? Because when God judged the earth in Noah's time, the rainbow was a symbol of a covenant. God said every time you look at the rainbow, understand this. There will be business as usual. There will be seed time and harvest and winter and summer. I am never going to step in again. In other words, when you see a raindrop, don't let it drive you crazy like the world's going to end. Here's my covenant. Peter tells us there is another day coming when the fires aren't going to stop and the waters aren't going to stop and the armies aren't going to stop marching and one day it's not going to be business as usual. One day you're going to turn on the TV, man, and it's starting and all this stuff we worried about won't matter a lick as men hide themselves in caves for the fear of what's coming on the earth. And the beautiful thing is the Bible says we have been worthy to escape all of these things through him who loves us. What a beautiful thing. The God who has filled our souls and the God who says we're the apple of his eye and longs to commune with us. And you have an open invitation every day.